0: Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Young Pros Talk podcast. My name is Redmond, and today's guest is a renowned chef here in Toronto, Chef Bashir. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing good. I'm very excited to be here with the Young Pros Talk. Thank uh, it's you. my first time doing podcasts. First so time th-
0: doing podcasts.
2: Yeah, so thanks
0: for having me. Okay, well, I have to make it the very best experience ever. Okay, so then you won't ever want to do another podcast. And he'll just do
2: mine every time. Absolutely, <laughs> you know it's kind of funny because they always told me, "But sure, you really have a face of broadcasting." So I'm, I'm glad <laughs> that I'm doing this podcast with you. Thank, Thank you. I'm so happy to
0: have you. I've, I was, I've, um, we, I came across you a few years ago, actually, um, at the Recipe for Change event. Yeah. Um, and you had the um, the dish was a, it was a kind of a, a more hardened injera. In Mm-hmm. a piece of injera. What I'm not exactly I don't remember exactly what was on it, but I just know it was the most amazing thing. Oh, thank that you. I that I had that evening and I didn't want to keep coming back to look like <laughs> this guy keeps coming back. You send, was, people? send people? I sent people. I did I did, I knew a few people there and I said, "Can you go over here? It's got the injera. What listen, just get it for me." Yeah. Just grab like five if you don't mind being <laughs> that person. You know, because um, I mind being that person, so.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that you had a positive experience. Thank no, it you. that was fantastic.
0: So how are you doing? How is everything?
2: You know, I'm, I'm good. Um, you know, I'm busy with school. I, you know, I've been teaching at Joe Brown College for about five years right now. Okay. Uh, it's a healthy transition for all people like me to move from the everyday cooking, mm-hmm, restaurant mm-hmm. industry, and uh, finding comfort in teaching to the new generation of cooks. Mm-hmm, so it provides mm-hmm. me joy um i'm kind of glad that i'm having an opportunity to do both physically teaching in school Mm -hmm. and also having an opportunity to continue work online so okay okay yeah
0: Yeah. and i actually went to um you had a course at with quell i think it was online yes and it was it was a lot of fun and it was a lot of fun and i i have the recipe because they did send out the recipe okay (laughs) and i've been thinking oh i have to try this out but
2: i haven't haven't got a chance to to try it out yet. There's always a, there's always another opportunity. And actually, I'm glad that you're here this evening so we can have a dinner together yeah, as Yeah, well. <laughs> I'm excited
3: about
0: that. That's very awesome. I appreciate you inviting me for that. Um, but let's start from the very beginning. Before we even get into uh, talking about being a, becoming a chef and things like that, when did the journey start? Tell us about you from the beginning, your journey coming to Canada and mm-hmm. then also deciding to go the path of becoming a chef.
2: Yeah, <clears throat> so I was uh, born in Mogadishu, Somalia, mm-hmm. the land of poets. Mm-hmm. Some people might call it the sea of pirates as well, but we stick with the land of poets. I like that. Um, cool. I lived for a few years there in my early childhood, and then I moved with my mother to Italy. Mm-hmm. I lived in Italy from 1979 to 92, so hence this little funny accent. <laughs> so Italian is my first language, then and then this broken English.
1: I lived in Italy
2: for about 13 years, uh, Civil War Saturday in Somalia mm-hmm. in 1999 it became extremely difficult for my mother to provide financial care for me she sent me to the States I lived in Virginia for a couple of years mm-hmm. uh, with my great-aunt and other relatives There was a bit of a culture shock if you can only imagine myself coming with my Italian swag from <laughs> Rome <laughs> to landing in Virginia to cowboys uh, with the uh, boots and uh, cowboy hats yeah. so. <laughs> so there was a bit of a culture shock but it was a great experience there and this, that's actually when I really fell in love with the, um, the whole African-American black culture because mm-hmm. I uh, mm-hmm. lived in Italy there is a different sense of a black identity and mm-hmm. being Somali as well so understanding the differences between a continental African and uh, <clears throat> Africans in the diaspora as well so that was like a, a very profound moment for my journey as a person and then, you know, after a couple of years living there, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I moved to Toronto in 1994. So I've been here in Toronto for approximately 28 years right now. Wow. Wow. So Toronto, it's kind of like home to me right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. I've only been in to Toronto a few years. Yeah. It's, well, six years. But I, I love the city as well. The city is great. The people it's here in Toronto, the people are like very diverse. I love the food scene in Toronto, mm-hmm. which... Technically, this is what really led me to my career. I came in 1994, I was like 21 year old. I didn't mm-hmm. really have a sense of a purpose of what I wanted to do. There was a, an aspir- aspiration, and expectation of my mother for me to become maybe a lawyer, a politician, maybe mm-hmm. be working for the United Nations. That was her dreams, but really didn't work with my uh, desire for exploring life. and. Mm-hmm. Um, on a one lazy Monday morning, my cousins say, hey, they have a, tra- they have a training program at the YMCA. Why don't mm-hmm. we go give it a try? And I went to this training program in 1996 and I fell in love with cooking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been cooking since then.
0: Wow, that's incredible. I read an article <laughs> that you had in Menu Magazine and mm-hmm. you talked about not being allowed in the kitchen a lot growing up. Was that, because of that history and things like that, there was never a thought to begin cooking then or it didn't start until you had the course in?
2: No, you know, when you, you know, I come from a culture that is very patriarchal, like Mm -hmm. many other parts in the world where Mm -hmm. cooking belongs really to a woman. It's Mm -hmm. a woman's place. Mm -hmm. So there's never really been an interest in me in cooking except constantly eating uh mm-hmm. eating from the hands of my mother my grandmother constantly being fed but there was never really any interest in cooking because mm. that's never really been thought about a possibility and only when i started at the tra- uh, training at the ymca i felt really compelled with mm. all the senses that you're able to actually cook in and on the menu magazine i see actually cooking really saved my life wow you know, wow. learning how to cook really saved my mm-hmm. life because when you're a young black man and you live in, in Toronto and like in many other large metropolis, if you don't really have a purpose, chances are that you're gonna find yourself in some kind of a trouble. Right. There are no resources for our youths. Right. You know, there is no financial ability for us to just like pop up and start a new business. So when you are a visible minority in Toronto, you have to find something that gives you not only a purpose, but also joy and fulfillment right. and cooking mm-hmm. provided all of those uh, aspects for me.
0: Wow. Okay. Now, is there a large black community in, in Italy?
2: Uh, yeah. Well, you know, in there are over 60 million uh, Italians who are white, but there are <laughs> over like 5 million, like I would say like black people Mm. from different parts of the continent okay so Italy has been a lot of like a pit stop for a lot of uh, Africans who migrated to other parts of Europe as well okay there's been a lot of migrations from uh, North Africans and from East Africans as well primarily because of the colonization history okay so a lot of uh, Somalis, Eritreans, Ethiopians, Libyans they all migrated post-colonization to, right. to the, back to the colony, which right. is very ironic. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there are a lot of uh, black folks there and, um, and uh, yeah, in different sectors of a social, political, uh, living conditions, mm-hmm. absolutely.
0: Now, would you say coming from Somalia to Italy, to America, Virginia, then Virginia to Toronto, Toronto. Mm-hmm. was there a culture shock each time going to each of those different countries and having to learn and adapt to, because those are very different cultures, mm-hmm. you know, each time you go. And even though America is like down the street from Toronto, yeah. it is still culturally very different. So what was that experience and like, you know, having to adapt to, to living um, in those different countries and adapting to that?
2: Yeah, you know, actually, it's funny because uh, part of my heritage is Somali people, we are nomads. Mm-hmm. So that element of nomadism has always been within me. Okay. So going from Italy, from Somalia to Italy, uh, you know, it was a culture shock because I didn't have anybody that really looked like me. Mm-hmm. They didn't speak the language. and because I was also Muslim, there were a lot of like cultural shocks to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, when you're a child, you become resilient and you easily adapt. When I moved from Italy to the States, there was a the biggest culture shock because, I've never seen so many black folks in my life. <laughs> actually, the first time that I landed in VA, actually I landed in Washington, in in New York, LaGuardia. And I honestly thought that by mistake, maybe my mother, she shipped me back to the motherland. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen so many black folks. So there was a bit of a culture shock. But, you know, I, I again, as I was mentioning to you, there was like a, an epiphany with the, of, with black beauty, mm-hmm, you know, which mm-hmm. was uh, constantly uh, denied when I lived in Italy because primarily Italian people build on a country that is a fascist country, they've mm-hmm. never really seen the beauty of black folks. So right. there was like a, this black love that, I, uh, that I've encountered that I felt uh, completely different. So there was a culture shock, but it was more like a joyful culture mm-hmm, shock. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved here in Virginia, I, the culture shock, the fact that I didn't really speak Somali, Mm. Uh, i didn't really grow up in the somali culture mm-hmm. i didn't have the same uh, mannerism and the same way of somali people culturally have been brought up especially mm-hmm. men mm-hmm. so coming here there was a bit of a culture shock and the fact that there were people from so many parts of the world mm-hmm. but throughout the journey has always been a, uh, an opportunity for me to learn to grow um, so yeah, I the, the element of nomadism, there's been a lot of a culture shock But mm-hmm. I feel that overall it's been wonderful to be able to experience so many parts of the world And really right. allowed me to kind of like slowly find my own groove and my own mm-hmm. identity
0: Would you say that Toronto has some of the more diverse black cultures in in those cities? Well, we, no, Italy is, doesn't have a large population Well, it has 5 million black people mm-hmm. But... There's 60 million white Italians. <laughs> yeah. um, and then America is, is there's black people, but it's a very Americanized version of the black culture. Mm-hmm. Whereas Canada or Toronto specifically is very, very different. Would you say that it's probably the more diverse? Oh
2: yeah, absolutely. Toronto has the most diverse black culture cultures all around the world not only from the continent but we have people coming from the caribbeans Mm -hmm. we have people that come from black mexicans Mm -hmm, you know which mm -hmm. is a story that is not much told we get a black brazilians from we have people from Guyana, venezuela peru so there are black folks from all around the world uh and i find that like it's really beautiful and it's very vibrant especially if you go like in the west end you might find a lot of like People coming from different parts of the continent
1: mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm.
2: if you go to you know if you go to maybe Scarborough you might find a different type of, uh, mm-hmm. of Africans from different uh, other parts of the world so a lot of African people when they migrated communities building in certain area mm-hmm. so when you are migrating into a new place you might want to look for people kind of look like you yeah, absolutely <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's how there are a lot of a pockets a lot, the largest pocket of a Somali people I will say they are in the west end specifically in Rexdale okay so okay. that's where they had like the largest community of Somali people okay. I know it's, it's very different for me so moving I moved originally from Detroit
0: and then I moved to Toronto mm-hmm. and not only was it a big culture shock I hadn't realized how much um, black food, like native from different African con- uh, countries that I had never had before. Mm-hmm. I mean, patties, I hadn't had Somali food until I moved here. I didn't have Ethiopian food until I moved here. Like even like uh stew chicken and things like that. Like these, I don't know why I didn't <laughs> have these foods. Well, I probably know why, Sure. Um, but Is it nice to be able to live in a city that you can, you know, have these different flavors that you can as a chef and be able to like put your own spin on some of these recipes or make up new recipes?
2: Absolutely. You know, there is uh, so much joy as a chef because for many years I worked primarily in European restaurants, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. boutique hotels, uh, um, catering companies. But I've never really had the interest or the desire to cook what we call like Pan-African food or like multi-ethnic African cuisine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I started to have an opportunity to meet many other chefs from other parts of the continent as well. And they were all introduced me to food that to me were like, how did i miss this in my life Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and once you go that kind of a blackness you never go back (laughs) so yeah so absolutely toronto has such a beautiful diverse uh african cuisine so from pocket to pockets in the city you're able to try from like West African cooking, South African, East mm-hmm. African. Yeah, Toronto has some really dope African food, has food from all around the world. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking for black food and African food, that is like such a beautiful diversity, not only you find like very quote unquote authentic to certain mm-hmm. region, mm-hmm. but it is also this new epiphany of young chefs who are trying to take a new take mm-hmm. on their own cultural upbringing right. as well.
3: Right, right.
0: Now, do you um, have a favorite dish pre- that you like to prepare and a favorite dish you like to eat, and are they different dishes or are they the same?
2: Different dishes, <laughs> different dishes. So one of my there are a couple of dishes that is like signature to me. Mm-hmm. Twenty twenty, I was, uh, um, I got the accolade of being a best uh, chef in Ontario. Wow, nice! The Globe Congratulations! And uh, I shared this recipe called the. Uh, Lul's Bamiya. Mm-hmm. Lul, it's the name of my mom, mm-hmm. and Bamiya it's a Somali word for okra. Mm. And I make this okra salad where the okra is actually roasted at a high heat oven so mm. it doesn't break down and release the gelatin. So the okra is like firm and crispy. Oh, wow. Okay. Most of the time we associate okra with this sliminess.
1: It's
0: very slimy. It's one of the reasons I usually don't eat it. But <laughs> the,
2: the word, you know, because okra is the quintessential African vegetable.
0: Really? It's the okay. quintessential.
2: So okra, that's where it actually originated, and so is watermelon, and so is tamarind, and many mm. other fruits and vegetables as well. But because okra, there's always been this uh, shame, stigma, taboo from both white and black folks as well. Mm -hmm. I I wanted to really reappropriate that narrative. Mm -hmm. And I fall in love with actually okra here through the African food basket. So those were like the first black farmers that I've seen in Ontario. Mm
1: -hmm. And they were
2: growing okra here in -hmm. Toronto. So to me as a chef was like, how dope? It is, right. <laughs> to find not only food that is a culturally appropriate to me, but it's also grown from folks that looks like me. Right. So that was the ultimate joy. So I made a, a choice to make that dish that had actually the okra and crispy Angera, because I'm mm-hmm. trying to find this intersectionality between local food mm-hmm. and diversity. And many of the things that are really important to me is really being able to not only showcase the vibrancy and the beauty mm-hmm. of our own food, but also being able to have a conversation around local people. Who's Mm -hmm. local, you know? Mm -hmm. And thinking about the farm and also been thinking about want to eat organic, but what is the financial accessibility? Right, And then Angera, because Ethiopia being the the, the country that has this beautiful grain called Mm teff, and there is an abundance. And many Ethiopian households, when the Angera, there is an abundance, they dry it up, Mm -hmm. and it turned into like chips or crackers. Mm. So I use the same... uh, example by incorporating this crispy angela into my roasted okra i have a childhood memories of the italian recipe called panzanella mm-hmm. which is like overripe tomatoes over stale bread okay and it's finished with olive oil and herbs and so forth so growing up in italy i have these beautiful memories of food that i ate and then i was like how wonderful can it be if i mm-hmm. can use food that is actually culturally appropriate to me and i put a twist and turn so that's one of my signature dishes and another dish that i really love that really breaks every possible italian household it's pasta with tomato sauce that has a cumin really
0: interesting
3: no
2: no, no italian people on their right mind there are <laughs> italian nonnas that are, as i'm saying right now they're tossing and turning <laughs> turning inside the coffin but i love it because it's something that that's that's something that the colonization have left mm. in Somalia bringing mm. us pasta and other food and then being able to use this combination of spices called hawashi so I intentionally eat that dish as a form to reclaim my own identity okay right? <laughs> and also because when my mother and my grandmothers they used to make in my house it smelled so beautiful so okay. one is driven by like me wanting to be a chef and showcasing my own cultural identity as a chef. And then the other one is like reappropriating narratives uh, of our own food back home as well.
1: Okay.
0: Okay. So wait, at the event, was that injera with the okra? No, that-,
2: that was the injera. I believe that I had a, a roasted beets on top okay. of it because i was
0: gonna say you made me like okra (laughs) (laughs) i was for a moment i was remembering back i was like i don't remember exactly what was it but if it was okra it was delicious thank you thank
2: you i'm gonna make okra for you and you're gonna say i'm a believer now i hey (laughs)
0: i I, I would love that and i i and i believe that already because i was assuming that it was okra already (laughs)
3: um
0: so when you um Do you have a particular process when you decide that I want to try to make a new recipe or I want to try something else? And is there a... How long does it usually take? I guess this is a two-part question.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: How long does it take you experimenting with new recipes before you find the one that's perfect?
2: Yeah, you know, I... I'm a bit of a spoiled chef. Mm-hmm. I'm not really a chefy chef. Mm-hmm. I don't get up in the morning wanting to make the perfect recipe. <laughs> and the only reason I'm saying that is because uh, I find a lot of a joy in uh, biodiversity.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I
2: find a lot of a joy in heirloom ingredients. And by default, those ingredients uh, that I'm looking for, they're not perfect. Okay. So if I'm going to, as an example, again, the Black Creek community farm, and they have like six type of a carrots. One is purple, one is yellow, mm-hmm. one is orange. Why do I want to make a perfect recipe mm-hmm. when nature constantly is changing? Mm-hmm. So why don't I embrace that constant movement? You know, cooking is like a river. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a stream that is constantly changed. And I don't believe in the word authenticity. Mm-hmm. Food is really not authentic to mm-hmm. anyone. Mm-hmm. Food is constantly changing. You That's know, if, true. if you think about food... When, when somebody used the word authenticity, we always have to think about in which time and in which place,
1: mm-hmm. you
2: know, the food that Italian people eat now, is not the same food they were eating 400 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Four, 400 years ago, prior of the invasions uh, and the genocide of Europeans, uh, specifically Spaniards and Italians in yeah. the Americas, mm-hmm. they didn't have tomatoes. So now the tomato sauce that they are so known for, it's actually from the America.
1: Mm, Marco Polo has
2: actually brought the noodles that now Italians have perfected Mm -hmm. from pasta. So such a thing as authenticity doesn't exist. So I don't really have the desire to do like the perfect recipe. Mm -hmm. I get up in the morning, I look what I have, and then I try to make something that makes everyone feel wholesome exciting mm-hmm. now obviously as a chef i have to do recipes right. uh, but i don't really look for the perfect recipes mm-hmm. i had it before a business called my little dumplings mm-hmm. so i had to have a recipe that it was consistent right. but i'm far from seeking for perfection right i'm looking for dopeness that's good <laughs> i like
0: that that's interesting that you bring that up that there's no um authentic because i look at something one of the caribbean foods i like is roti yeah and if you look at the history the roti bread actually comes from India. India, yeah, and then you have all of the the flavors from the black people in Trinidad, and you mix them together, and then you have the most amazing thing that I've <laughs> eaten before, sure. um, roti. So yes. that's an interesting concept to, to to think of, yeah, because yeah. food comes from everywhere. Everything is everything influences everything, sure, you know. So yeah. there's definitely, and then there's also um, probably some colonial influence where some of those foods in certain countries mm-hmm. um were stolen so to speak (laughs) (laughs) yes they were yes they were (laughs) they were stolen and you know then they become like a household you know dish for that particular country and stuff like that okay you call your form of cooking nomadic comfort food Mm -hmm. right the type of food you make how did you come to coin that term where did you come up with the idea why did you decide to call Nomadic comfort food, what's the history behind yeah, it? Yeah,
2: so Somali people, we are nomads, we consume mm-hmm. more camel meat per capita than any other countries really? around the world, absolutely. And we don't, you know, our landscape really forces us to be who we are nomads mm-hmm. because the land wasn't really designed to be an agrarian space mm-hmm. so we don't have a history of growing a lot of vegetables mm-hmm. but we have the most beautiful coastline in the continent mm-hmm. the longest straight coastline in the continent full of sharks but no matter what we have the <laughs> longest and most beautiful coastline and uh, our history it's based on uh, on uh, this pastoral way of living you know, mm-hmm. we take our carols from one particular place, we go through journeys in the desert for 40 kilometers and so forth. And then at the end of the day, we'll make ourselves home in that particular place. Mm-hmm. So the nomadism that is primarily part of my lineage and past- the pastoral way of my community, but also led me to going to Italy and from Italy dropping to the States mm-hmm. and from the States coming to Toronto. And part of the nomadism or the, or the nomadic comfort for cooking is a constant movement, mm-hmm. the adaptability, very much built on the yearning of home. You know? Okay, I see. Because now I'm not home anymore mm-hmm. and I have the desire to cook food that is like relevant and it makes me feel wholesome, mm-hmm. right? So when I'm cooking food, I'm constantly trying to find something that is like yearning, mm-hmm. and all, I might not know exactly what is it that I'm yearning for, mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. definitely something that is continental African, mm, right? Okay. And I'm trying to come up with new recipes by using ingredients that are here. Okay. So I might not have the same ingredients that I had back home. So I'll give an example, maybe back home we might eat it like camel,
3: mm-hmm. but
2: I don't have camel, but I say, you know what, maybe for this particular recipe, I will be eating caribou mm, or deer right. or venison or muskox mm-hmm. and so forth, right? In order for me to get that kind of like a gamey flavor that camel might have, mm-hmm. right? And then I might, I might be looking for that okra they we were talking about, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, back home, we might not have a particular greens, but now here there is this new greens, and I'm trying to come up with recipes that are authentic to me mm-hmm. based on that kind of a yearning. So that's why I call it nomadic comfort food, okay. because at the end of the day, it's like, Delicious, unpretentious food that mm-hmm. makes you feel good and mm-hmm. comfortable.
0: Now, have have you? Do you have any dishes that you have created um, that were influenced by Somali, Italian, American, and I guess Canadian culture? Or usually, are there? Do you usually just pairing something from from foods that inspire you from that you enjoy and you? are Yeah, I,
2: I do a lot of a food that inspired by. So now I'm actually, if you have a time, you should join my cooking classes this Saturday. Okay. It's called, uh, again, Nomadic Comfort Cooking Classes. Mm -hmm. It's a four weeks journey going from uh, cooking Swahili food.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. So
2: Swahili food will be like the food from the east coast of the continent. Okay. Uh, And Swahili people are very much similar to the Creole people. Mm Mm-hmm. And Mm. the similarities between the two culture is that there is an influence of indian people Mm. the bantu which are the Mm. local people from there then there are a lot of influence from like the the yemeni or the arabian influence Mm. that brought islamic indoctrination Mm. and then the other bottom line but because the way they're located there's been this constant change of people. So we have indigenous Africans, Yemeni, we have Indians, we have Chinese. So it's like a melting pot of people in that place. So the food that I'm doing, there is like starting East Africa. And then I go and do like North African food because I lived in Italy and I fall in love with Mediterranean cooking, but Mm. specifically North African cooking. And then the last one, it's like I fall in love with American soul food.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I
2: feel that soul food—it's something that is like inherently African American. So mm-hmm. I will never be able to cook food claiming to be soul food.
0: Mm, I understand. I you know understand.
2: Because I mean? although I'm black, I still feel that it's like somewhat of a cultural appropriation. Mm, that is really not tied, bond, and connection with me.
0: Honestly, as an American, I actually can't make certain <laughs> soul foods like i can make some really good macaroni and cheese okay, okay. but if you want fried chicken it's not happening <laughs> it's it's not happening at all yeah um are are there spices that you are always present in some of your dishes like you're you're never not gonna put mm. this group of spices together to blend these flavors
2: i i, I don't i don't have that i don't have that because you know no. why i you know today i feel like eating Pasta with, you know, vongole mm-hmm. and parsley and garlic and olive oil and fresh mm-hmm. bird eye chili peppers. But this evening we're going to have like a, uh, a Kerala, like a southern Indian uh, curry coconut chicken mm. and we're gonna be eating like cassava leaves and i'm gonna make like some white cornmeal okay so i feel a bit spoiled and i don't <laughs> have like something that i gotta have it mm-hmm. and a lot of the joy that i find in cooking is like based on seasonality you know mm, and right. today i feel like oh, it's a hot summer day so i'm gonna have like a, a watermelon salad with right. maybe like cheese and fresh mint and so forth mm. but maybe This evening's gonna be like the pumpkin stew with maybe some roti shells and and some chana, you know? That sounds amazing. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Now, do when you go um, shopping for um, the resources, the things to make things, Mm -hmm. how much time do you usually spend gathering ingredients? Mm -hmm. Like, do you already know ahead of time what you want to make and you go get that? Or are you sometimes in a store, which is, this is my way of shopping, actually. (laughs) You're in a store, you see... I don't know, potatoes or something. You're like, oh, wow, potatoes. This is what happened to me, actually. This is me just telling my life right now at this point. (laughs) Today, I was like, you know what? Mashed potatoes for lunch would be great. So I was in the store and grabbed potatoes. Now, is that... Is that how you um, shop sometimes when it comes to things? You get inspiration, both, both, both. both. Okay. and I'll
2: explain you why. Like when you have, a, I have a family as well. So when I have a family, I have to be disciplined primarily from a budget pre- price point.
1: Mm. So I have to mm-hmm. have
2: like a menu in my mind. Okay, I have to have an ingredients list for my family. I have to shop, but while I'm shopping, you know, the the chefy that I am, I'm gonna say, oh my gosh, look at that mango. So I'm gonna end up picking up three, four, five things that were not part of what I had planned (laughs) and then let all my my family might say, what are these ingredients for us? Like, look at them, smell them. How can't you say no to that? So I do have an action plan in order for me to shop and cook the things that I need, primarily from a financial price point. mm -hmm. And then I always live with something that makes me feel like I got to have this one. Okay. Yeah. Do you
0: go to the same places for certain ingredients? Like I know for myself Mm -hmm. where I live. Say I want cassava. It's not happening where Mm, I live. You know, I can't get cassava from the store. Yeah. Although they randomly had a chocolate orange, (laughs) which was surprising. I was like, what's happening here? Yeah. Of course, I grabbed it because I was like surprised. Yeah. But do you usually go to different places for the ingredients? And I know certain ingredients, Mm -hmm. you can't go at the chain grocery stores. You might have to go somewhere else. It's usually where you get your ingredients from.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the other day I had to be for a TV show called The Social, so mm-hmm. for The Social, I made it, there was this segment called, uh, this is how Bashu got his groove back. <laughs> I think I saw that actually. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole episode was based about, you know, myself coming back from Uganda, mm. and I made it, this recipe, one was called the Ugandan Rolex, which, mm. which is a chapati that has like an omelet inside and vegetables and chilies and so forth. And then the other one was like, a, a peanut stew, uh, smoked fish sauce, Mm-hmm. uh over white cornmeal and wow. then i was gonna make like this thing called matoke which mm-hmm. is a type of a green banana that is steamed over banana leaves and when you steam them it becomes like color becomes like pumpkin so yeah so when i'm looking mm-hmm. for food that is like culturally significant to me mm-hmm. i have to go to maybe kensington market okay yeah And buy a lot of stuff from the caribbean mm-hmm. shop Big ups to Miss Yvonne from the Caribbean corner. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, which is a staple for me when it comes about, you know, looking for Caribbean and African-Caribbean food mm-hmm. at in the market. But sometimes I might have to go all the down to a to find like wow. smoked fish, to find proper wow. peanuts. And So if you're looking for food that is like culturally appropriate to you, you got to go a little bit further. And I, I have, I, I find myself like a kid in a, in a, in a candy store. Because I see mm-hmm. a lot of new ingredients that I've never seen before. So the other day, I went again for, to do one recipe. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, there is the have here frozen cassava leaves. When really? is the last time that I ate a ca- frozen cassava leaves? Mm-hmm. Two years ago, maybe? So I went home with frozen cassava leaves. I went home with the Nigerian seasoning instant spice. I went home wow. with like 10 items that I didn't really need. But as you were saying, it was like, it was really worth the trip. Okay.
0: I definitely need to go shopping when you go shopping now <laughs> for... <laughs> Cause I need to try some different things. I never, I I'm I won't, I, I guess maybe because I'm I'm not a chef or anything. I mean, I like to think I'm a chef in my head, you know, when I'm (laughs) when I'm cooking, but I'm I'm very. It's all about convenience for me. Mm. So even though I would love cassava or I would love some things, the grocery store is walking dances for me.
2: So I'm just kind of like, I don't know. Maybe you need to find the. A female chef who, who loves <laughs> cassava and stuff like that, I'm sure you'll be finding the motivation to go on to the western.
0: You won't. Lo- That's not true. Yes, and I might take a trip to Colombia if I needed to get some ingredients that were only grown there.
2: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, so, oh, what would you say is one of the biggest challenges with being a chef?
2: Oh, um, I think if you, the biggest challenge of being a chef, it's a real, real chef, they have to be somewhat selfish and narcissistic Mm -hmm. in order for them to be able to excel and be really, really talented chefs. Mm -hmm. Like many other, I'm using the word very loosely, artists, Mm -hmm. you have to put a lot of hours, thousands Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. thousands of hours. And oftentimes when you're owning a restaurant or you run in a restaurant, you don't really have a social life Mm -hmm. because the restaurant becomes your number one priority over Mm -hmm. your wife, Mm -hmm. your kids, your friends, you don't Mm -hmm. really have a social life. So you become very, very conceited in the art of cooking. Mm You lose in friendships. Um, There are a lot of hardship that comes with cooking above and beyond the joy. There are a lot of sacrifices that really talented chefs have to go through. So, mm-hmm. if you want to really excel and become like a fantastic chef, mm-hmm. you have to do a lot of personal sacrifices. You know, I myself, as you read in the menu magazine, there's been plenty of time, I would say maybe years, that I will come home late at nighttime mm-hmm. when my kids mm-hmm. are already sleeping. Right. And I will stay like barely with my eyes open in the morning on the way to school, Mm, right? mm -hmm. So this kind of a life that is like nocturnal life, which is not really, Mm -hmm. you know, I will be home at one o'clock at night time, but then everybody's sleeping, right? Right. right. So I feel that it's like, it comes with a lot of sacrifices, and uh, but if you really, such a thing as a work balance doesn't really exist Mm
3: -hmm. for people who want Mm to excel in
2: any aspect of of, of life, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to be a musician or anything like that, suddenly finding yourself traveling, you know, or being a comedian, you have to find yourself going from one place to another place, but, I was lucky like enough that um, I've always been good in teaching mm-hmm. as a chef in my kitchens. Mm-hmm. So it was a natural inclination for me to transition from everyday cooking to mm-hmm. now being a teacher. But yes, there are a lot of sacrifices that comes with cooking.
0: When you're running in a restaurant and you're cooking in, in the restaurant, how many hours are, usually, are chefs usually spending cooking, making sure food is prepared well, for what I understand about cooking, there's a lot of prep and there's also a lot of ensuring things are clean and things like that. So it's not always just 100% mm-hmm. cooking, for what I understand. Like how many hours are we are we talking about here usually?
2: I think if we're talking about physical hour presently in the kitchen, I would say a minimum 12 hours. Wow. Wow. And so, 12 to 10 to 12 hours, it's a minimum. Most mm-hmm. real chefs, they work like a minimum of 60 to 70 hours. That's a norm, wow. right? Uh, but that's physically being in there. But imagine when you own a restaurant, at the end of the night, when you're going home and you close your eyes, guess what are you thinking of? Mm-hmm. The restaurant. Ah, did I shut off the lights? <laughs> did I close the water? <laughs> is the gas off? Did I call the supplier? Have I placed my orders?
3: <laughs> so there are those
2: 10 to 12, 14 hours in the kitchen cooking, maybe six days a week. And then it's like when you're sleeping at nighttime, you're still thinking mm-hmm. about the, the, the restaurants.
0: So there's elements. Um, there's cooking. Those are one elements. But then there's the also the other thing of, you know, ensuring that you're getting your your proper foods and, and vegetables and your orders and making sure those things mm-hmm. are. Because obviously if you don't have the right amount of, Things you need that could affect how you are producing food in a restaurant. Absolutely. So back to your article in Menu Magazine, which was honestly a fantastic piece that I really enjoyed. Thank you. Reading. How important was it for you to write that? Because you wrote the letter to your daughter. How important was it for you to write that? How long did it take you to write that? Did you have any... Reservations, or fillings, or anxiety <laughs> surrounding writing something like that, and, and putting it in a magazine. Like, talk about that.
2: Yeah, you know, as a as a father, you know, I oftentimes because of my schedule, my work, and so forth, I really think about my own shortcomings. Mm-hmm. And uh, the quote unquote, I'm, I'm using the word the selfish acts in wanting to quote unquote prioritize my restaurant or my career. There's plenty of times I went home feeling guilty you know Mm -hmm. and not being able to clearly articulate it when she was younger because perhaps she couldn't understand why that is constantly working obviously you have a financial responsibility to provide for your family but then you also have this desire of cooking you know Mm and cooking becomes this love affair that you have with the the restaurant Mm -hmm. not necessarily in, like in a very like loose way, like l- the love for f- cooking and food and the adrenaline rush and the camaraderie, and I took that selfish act, and I and I and I denied my daughter from me being mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So I felt that it was important as I was writing down. Oftentimes I write it, mm-hmm. I write things, you know, on my phone, you know, I write it, write it, write it, and I felt that this letter really speaks about where I am now as a man
1: you know mm-hmm. the
2: growth that i've done as a chef but also being able to really think about what are the things that i could have done differently mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and maybe i could have said no to many opportunities in order for me to be able to be more present in her life so this was like a, le- a letter of love for mm-hmm. her primarily to kind of like forgive me <laughs> 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 you know to somewhat empathize with my choices as mm-hmm. a as a person as a chef being a young chef and wanting to uh, you know, provided for my family, but also, mm-hmm. you know, meeting my ambitions and goal, right. aspirations in life.
0: Now, did your daughter read that article? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did?
2: We, we Not only she read the article, I, I asked her to read it prior to the, actual, the oh, article. Oh, before it was published. published okay, okay. Article. And then we actually went and did a photo shoot together. Okay, okay. So, I think she felt a lot of a pride because of, uh, you know, when you publicly... You know making a love affirmation i mm-hmm. think it's also really important when you tell them it's good you know but when there is this like public affirmation and i made a part of uh, my intentions and action i think really resonated with her. okay that's good
0: that's yeah. good so do you, as a as a chef do you do you watch like cooking shows at all or do you watch like movies that are surrounding
3: not, used, not as much. Not I, I
2: use when I was younger. I was constantly watching things. Nowadays, I feel that a lot of content on media, it's uh, there is a lot of a fluff. There's mm, a lot of competitions. Yeah, there isn't really many things that I find it like, wow, this was like so impactful. Yeah, maybe the last thing that I watched was like, high on the hogs. Okay. Yeah,
0: that was on Netflix. <laughs> that was really good. Yeah, I didn't finish watching it. Yeah, but what I loved about it was yeah. the history mm-hmm. that went into it. wasn't just about food; it was the history of where the, the food, food came com- from. Yeah, you know, which yeah. was very yeah. interesting to me. Yeah. And um, I haven't finished. I need to watch finish, finish that. <laughs> Spoiler alert! Spo- no. <laughs> <laughs> My grandmother used to watch and You talk about the competition mm-hmm. shows. Sometimes I do feel like. And this is just as an outsider looking. And those shows get a bit obnoxious mm-hmm. to a degree. Because I remember <laughs> I was watching... I used to watch... My grandmother loved The Cooking Channel. Yeah. My grandmother was... She was like the person who taught me how to cook. She taught mm-hmm. me about blending flavors and how to, you know, mm-hmm. make sure there's a balance of acidity and this, you cool. know. So, she she was really big in, on that. And I remember watching... I, I can't... I don't remember if it's... um. I don't think it's Chopped. It's one of the other cooking shows sure. where... They give you all these random ingredients that aren't even supposed to go Mm. together with each other. And they're like, cook something delicious.
2: Yeah. Is that, is that real? Is that like... I I think that they do it, but again, it's, it's primarily for glorified entertainment. Mm, mm -hmm. Real chefs, one of my close friends, he had to go and compete for the show called the Canada Top Chef. Mm, It was actually the first time that a black man on the 11 years of the show was being invited to the place. Wow that's wow. how much of a impact of a covid and black life matter and the me too movement impacted the right. food network wow. so the two of us we were kind of like preparing for him to go and do mm-hmm. this competition and you know i've been invited many times in chopped and a lot of those food shows and mm-hmm. but i never had the desire mm-hmm. and i don't believe for me that cooking in that way it's a real identification of what a real chef is right and, and right. many of those chefs who've been on those tvs they've went home feeling somewhat humiliated, and embarrassed. Yeah. Because it's not really a really reflection of the skills that I have. Right. Right. If you really master in noodle making or maybe certain type of a cultural dishes and now you've been asked to do something that doesn't have anything to do with you with some yeah, random ingredients. Absolutely. It's really not. But you know what? I don't really blame on the show you know (laughs) (laughs) you as a cook you made a particular choice to be part of that and if you fell it's particular choice yeah i
0: remember (laughs) watching this one episode with my grandmother and she was like they were given some weird ingredients and she was like oh that actually doesn't have flavor it's just texture or color or something right and i was like okay watch him say i can't taste this And he sure did. He he tasted it. He was like, I can't taste this thing. And my grandmother like lost, (laughs) lost her mind. She's like, you can't even, it's not even any flavor. (laughs) You know, so it was, it was interesting. I mean, I do like watching those cooking channels, but you're right. There are not enough. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about this the other day, honestly, is I see like when I'm on, when I go to the gym and I um reluctantly get on (laughs) the the exercise machines i always end up on like the cooking channel Mm. because these machines only have like three
2: channels (laughs) so while you're trying to lose weight they make you watch tv (laughs) i'm
0: always thinking about my next meal okay i literally go to sleep and say oh i can't wait to wake up so i can eat again like that's (laughs) that's the best part but um, I did notice that I was thinking just the other day, wow, you don't see a lot of black people with mm. cooking shows or cooking flavors. And it's gotten to the point, this is probably going to sound very bad, that when I'm looking for a recipe <laughs> and if I find a recipe and there's like a picture of a white person on a recipe, yeah, I, I- Go to another recipe.
2: (laughs) Especially if you find like a jerk chicken recipe written by a white guy. And that's to me, I was like, okay, no, thank you. I was looking for, I think it was
0: actually it wasn't jerk chicken, so it was um it was curry chicken. Yeah. I was looking for. And it was like a picture of a white woman. I was like, no, let me (laughs) sorry. I just I want to know somebody. You know. So any any chefs that inspire you through your your journey they can be famous they can be local they, whoever mm-hmm. um any chef that you know
2: so the the, the the no brand name was my mother <laughs> mm-hmm. that's that's been uh, the most influential uh, chef in my life and not because of necessarily uh she cooked uh, uh gastronomic meals but the love that she had for food,
1: mm-hmm.
2: the love mm-hmm. that she had for ingredients, mm-hmm. the joy when she brings some new ingredients, and I'm like, okay, well, what's the big <laughs> deal, <laughs> you know? But now I think that joy that she had around food always resonated with me. The joy of cooking for people, you mm-hmm. know, because cooking is an act of love. Mm-hmm.
1: You don't Absolutely. get up in the
2: morning just wanting to make a wonderful meal for yourself. Absolutely. You know, you cook for yourself, but then you cook with love or mm-hmm. with more intention and purpose. you're cooking for somebody Mm. else so i feel the cooking is an act of love so that really she installed it in me and then the other thing the chef that really influenced me a lot as a as a person to identify his name is marcus samuelson
0: yes yeah he's uh he's in Sweden. is he from sweden i believe he's originally but but he's from ethiopia he's ethiopia
2: being adopted Mm. by a swedish family during the 70s Um, lived this life similarly like me Mm -hmm. with this dual identity like Mm -hmm. myself lived in Italy brought up in a boarding school with nuns Mm
3: -hmm. only
2: eating Italian food Mm -hmm. so that was his own personal experience there was no real connection about his own heritage and then he moved to the States so Mm he became already like a very young uh, acclaimed chef at the age of like 22 to 24 so he was the chef at this restaurant inside the World Trade Center when he was like 24 year old, right, the executive chef, then they opened one in Minneapolis Mm -hmm. and to me as a young black chef, seeing someone like me but also somebody that had this nomadic lifestyle, you know, born in Ethiopia, lived in Sweden, Swedish was his first language for the Mm -hmm. longest time, spoke English and cooked like very modern French. And Scandinavian cuisine Mm -hmm. so to me it's like how dope this guy is yeah so really fall in love with what he meant to young black chefs like Mm -hmm. me and then he made this book called the soul of an African cuisine or Soul of a new African cuisine okay which was like his own uh, kind of like an interpretation Mm -hmm. of a continental African food with modern French cooking techniques Mm -hmm. and so forth so he was the guy that really influenced me a lot um yeah so so is
0: it a cookbook or is it um just a like, it has a like, cookbook it has a cookbook that was the, his first cookbook okay and that
2: was like the epiphany of his own blackness okay okay right and okay. i think that is the journey for a lot of the blacks who grew up in mm-hmm. europe that one morning you were copying like I'm I'm black (laughs) And I'm loving it And I'm loving it right So you're not cooking Any more food That is like Just European Or Mm -hmm. colonized food But you're starting To really deep Deep looking for it So there's been A lot of a conversation For a lot of young Black African chefs Mm -hmm. Around cooking Based on Ancestral knowledge As well Right
0: It's interesting That you bring on Marcus Marcus Samuelson Because I actually learned Through the pandemic How to make Spiced butter Because of him Okay I was looking to make I wanted to make um, tibs, yeah, for myself, yeah. Um, and he had a video on YouTube, and I googled him a little bit and learned more about him. Okay, but he, I literally was making spice butter, yeah. to make the tibs, yeah. And I literally followed everything he said. I ordered some fenugreek. I yeah. ordered, I got some cumin in there. I put some red onions in there, okay. and I literally have it. And I have my friend. Who was uh, Eritrean. Yeah. I had her smell it and she was like, this is good. Okay. And I was like, yes. You know, <laughs> so it was, he was an inspiration. He was one of the chefs that I found um, during a pandemic when mm. I was like looking to make certain dishes. And yeah. he, he had some YouTube videos.
2: And there is another guy that I also like from, I think it's from Detroit as well. His name is Brian Terry. I
0: feel like I've heard of him. Yeah,
2: he's a he's the quintessential black vegan chef. When there were he's not a lot of vegan a converse, chef. when there were not a lot of black vegan chefs, and he has a book called "The Vegan Soul Food" as well. So mm. he has a plenty of a books out there. It's been a lot of American shows okay. as well. So Brian Terry, and the fact that I like about him, he does a lot of. A, he used to do a lot of a community work, mm-hmm. ensuring that like a lot of a black folks are reconnected to land. Considering what happened to Detroit, yeah, there's a plenty of a land, and now like black folks are like. Have been farming, but now right. there's been a lot of land that are retaking it to be able to grow food as well.
0: Yeah, there is an urban farm in yeah. Detroit. Yeah. Now, um, when I left Detroit, Detroit was going through a lot of tur- turmoil. Mm-hmm. Detroit was, when I was in university and the biggest news was like they filed for bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Which was like the first municipality yes. to like every do, ever do that. But I know now that there are a lot of more African-inspired restaurants mm-hmm. that are popping up in Detroit. Cool. And I have a friend that lives there. I have some friends that live there and work there. And since I've left, some of the like cultural cuisines that I've come, yeah. It's just it's been skyrocketing. That's pretty cool. It's been skyrocketing. So okay, so when you when you do events like the recipe for change or when you're doing something for a class, um, virtually like the like the Quell, yeah <clears throat> the quail session how do you determine the menu how do you determine is it conversations with the people who are involved with an event that you decide okay this is what i'm going to do or do you um just decide on it on your own and decide okay maybe i want to try this and put these flavors together and let people experience in that. Experience
2: that. Yeah, I'm from event to event, it's always different. Mm-hmm. So when we're doing the event for, as an example for Foodshare, they ask to do something that is like one or two bite size. Ah, So okay, for okay. that particular event, I used the Angera because it was an all black chef event. Yeah, it was a fantastic event. And I, and I wanted to take a pride in the fact that we have like delicious food. So mm-hmm. I think for me, is always like driven by intention to show the beauty the relevance and the contribution of African food and African ingredients as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I made this dish I think I'm not sure if you had it but it was a a beet tartare so it's kind of like a kifto Mm. you know so you cook beets roast them and then you cook them with the spiced butter, mm. I call it funky butter <laughs> okay? because the fenugreek and it smells like and mm-hmm. tastes like it's fermented which I love it and I have it in my fridge and I have a berbere in my fridge as well mm-hmm. so you cook beets, you grate them and then you cook shallots with the funky butter you put the berbere, you put the beets inside and my only twist you cook with a little bit of orange juice Mm-mm. so the berbere gives the spice the spice butter gives that funkiness from the fenugreek and the cumin and the seasonings. And then the orange juice gives like sweetness. Right. Classically trained beets and orange go well together. Mm. So I put it together. So for me, there's always been like an intention. But also, the food that I'm cooking is based on the conversation. So if okay. the conversation is around food security, so this weekend I'm doing a recipe with Western University mm-hmm. and it's around food security. So what I'm showing is this uh, dish called koturoti. Mm -hmm. And kottu roti is basically a stir fried roti originated Mm. in Sri Lanka, like many cultures similarly to Angera, there is an abundance of roti. Mm. So now we get all this roti, what are we going to do with it? So they chop it up in small pieces and then they fry it with oil, garlic, ginger, fresh curry leaves. What Mm. else we got there? Oh, there is some mutton left over, throw mutton. And Mm. then at the end you add eggs inside. Kind of like a, a stir fry rice, mm-hmm. but the only difference is with the roti. And the conversation it's built on minimizing food waste, acknowledging right. that a lot of people they're food insecure. So when you look at it in your fridge, if you have a little bit of a home cooking sense, you're able to take things out and make the most out of it. Okay. This recipe right here is not an answer to fight food insecurity, mm-hmm. but it provides a conversation and acknowledging. The lack of ability for many people to have access to food
0: Okay, hmm Now I don't remember if
2: I did try that But I had so much food Okay <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I might be so, confusing so, if it was the bitter tart, But it was definitely the injera We both remember that Yeah,
0: the injera I remember yeah. But I ate so much food there yeah. Like there's a high possibility that I did have <laughs> okay. that sure. Because there was nothing I didn't Everything was so uh, I missed that was the last event I actually went to before the pandemic.
2: Well so it was for me. Yeah, it was the yes. last event.
0: Were you scheduled to do any more events yes. prior to <laughs>
3: Yes, oh, a lot of
2: them. Wow. A lot of work got cancelled, but it's okay. That's okay. It's okay.
0: Any new projects that you will be working on that people should look out for?
2: Yeah. So I'm um I'm I'm working on four new recipes for my nomadic comfort cooking classes. Okay. The cooking class is not really it's not the most financially gained activity for me Mm -hmm. it's usually saturday night it's from six o'clock until eight o'clock but it really gives me joy to really cook privately and intimately food Mm -hmm. that is like really important to me Mm -hmm. you know i have this constant desire to share like how beautiful our food is so Mm -hmm. i have that one i'm I've, i've i've been I've been, I've been going back to CDTV and other channels to do other cooking shows and mm-hmm. so forth, but I'm just keeping myself on the low now. I just <laughs> graduated from university and I'm, I'm taking, thank you, and I'm taking the work that I've done for my thesis and converting it into a curriculum. Okay. You know, my main focus in school was primarily what is the experience of racialized students going to a European cooking school, mm-hmm. and when you are a black child and you're going to this European cooking school, how do you shed your own skin to assimilate and become this ultimate white chef Mm -hmm. right so -hmm. I'm trying to find the critical thinking around race analysis in cooking and how young cooks who I want them to become agents of change can really reflect on honoring maintaining their own cultural diversity Mm. because here Trontonians are celebrating diversity yeah absolutely and in order to maintain diversity someone has to maintain that fire mm-hmm. about food that is really meaningful to us absolutely so that's my joy
0: okay what is one thing um and i want to make sure i'm reading this right i hope i actually wrote it right so <laughs> <laughs> uh what is one thing that you want people to take away from your you know your culinary journey and tasting your cuisine
2: yeah, one, one takeaway. For me, as, as I was mentioned to you, this conversation is for everyone, but this is specifically for young black people. Mm-hmm. And you know, and young doesn't mean necessarily age, it's like young at heart can be as right. well. absolutely. It's like really reappropriating our own narrative about how our food is beautiful, how mm-hmm. vibrant are our people. Mm-hmm. I feel that through colonization and the enslavement of Africans uh, we lost. Mm-hmm. You know, the beauty, mm-hmm. the relevance, and the contribution. So, really, one for people who are listening at this, this moment right here, specifically uh, the Black community, uh, how beautiful it's our multi ethnic African experience. Mm-hmm. Think about a continent with over 52 countries. Right. And oftentimes, you know, you don't really, actually, very rarely you hear how beautiful this continent is. Absolutely. And then you think about people in the Caribbean the blacks in the States, blacks in everywhere in the world. So for me, it's like the takeaway for people, it's like taking a moment and being inquisitive about like, what does Congolese food look like?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: How mm-hmm. does it taste? Is anyone from Congo here mm-hmm. online on Facebook? Like. Let me, let me come to your home and share with right. me what makes that beautiful. I heard this country called Switzerland. Is mm. it a Switzerland? No, no, it's <laughs> Switzerland, right? So it's like I have the desire just as much as you're looking to learn about like French food or Austrian or Italian or whatever it might be the flavor of the day or like mm. Thai cooking. What about this African continent? So mm. I want people to like take a moment to like and reflect about like the beauty, the relevance and the contribution of our own food. Amazing.
0: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Now, I know we discussed earlier that, you know, you don't believe in perfect food and perfect dishes and things. However, do you uh, believe that there is one dish, excuse me, do you have a dish that you've cooked that you feel is the best thing you ever made?
2: Man, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't, because I, I, you know, I have a variety of ADD and ADHD. Mm-hmm. So for me, like, if 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 I leave my house right now and I gotta go get something, I'm not gonna be able to make the same thing twice in the same way. I feel okay. that you know that makes sense. Yeah, you know, and I feel like there's so much more joy on, in actually improving mm-hmm. food all the time. Mm-hmm. Last time was like this but this time it's like that. And how can I make it even better? And maybe it doesn't have to be better, but it's like, can you always feel wholesome when you eat my food? Do you feel delicious? Do you wanna go for more? Did you bring your own Tupperware when you (laughs) knew you were coming to my home? (laughs) <laughs> That's the feeling that I want you to get when it's like, okay, I'm gonna go to his house. Damn, I forgot the Tupperware. <laughs> the Tupperware. I'm sure that he has a Tupperware. I don't wanna, but he knows as a chef, as a black person, that black folks are expected to get some food home. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> now, final question for you. This is yeah. a question I ask all of my guests, and it's interesting because no matter um, what it is they do, the answers are always a bit different or the reasoning behind the answer is a bit different so this is just like my fun question that i just ask everybody would you prefer to be the first at something or the best the first at
2: something or being the best at something well the first doesn't mean necessarily that it's good. <laughs> but I always felt, I've always felt, and I've been called, even with my little dumpling, a pioneer.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I
2: feel that I've always been courageous, you know, and uh, I, I was the first one to really do a research around who's growing culturally appropriate food to me. So I've always felt that me being the first, you know, a pioneer in seeking for something uh it's always been very important and meaningful to me perhaps because of my nomadic lifestyle Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. going from somewhere without knowing without really not knowing what the ending place might be Mm -hmm. but the ability to find the courage to be the first one i think it's always been more important to me than being the best
0: really okay great. you get
2: a whole journey of a lifetime to always improve to become better
0: that is true but you have to have the
2: courage to be the first
0: okay See, I'm still trying to find that fine line of being both.
2: Yes. But I don't know if it's possible. (laughs) But, you know, the thought is there. Well, listen, you got your own podcast. Thank you. Maybe you are the first one in your family to take such a leap, right?
0: That would not be inaccurate, actually. That is very true. You know, I will have to ask my aunt. Um, if I'm the best, you know, because she always tells me, I listen to your podcast. And she's like, I would have asked this and I would have asked. And I was like, thank, thank you. I love you too, Auntie. I'm glad you listen and appreciate you. you know? <laughs> Chef Bashir, uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. How can people find out more about you?
2: Well, you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Bashir. You can also Google me, Bashir Mounier, and uh, you can stay connected with me. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank
3: you. Thank you. Thank you.